David has come a long way at this point in his life. Growing up as a shepherd boy in Bethlehem, David looked after his family's sheep, which was usually relegated to a child in the family. It was there that the Lord had trained David in the everyday mundane things in caring for sheep. Sheep are messy, dumb animals. It's no secret that the Lord equates us as sheep. He had to clean them. He had to make sure that they were well watered, protected from wild animals, and spend long hours chasing the ones that would stray. And let me say a word to those of you who are in a place where you feel you're doing those everyday mundane things in your life. The Bible says, do not despise the days of small things, for it is there that the Lord is building you up and training you for his purpose for you. And it's in the little things, the small things, the mundane things in your life is where he prepares you. And isn't that what Jesus did for the first 30 years of his life? He was a carpenter in a lower middle class working family, and he labored day after day, faithful in the little things. Now, after Saul was rejected by God as the king of Israel, Samuel was directed by the Lord to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel. Samuel examined all of Jesse's very strong, very handsome sons, but the Lord rejected them all. And then here comes this little ruddy shepherd boy named David. And the Lord says, that's the one. That's the one who's a man after my own heart. So Samuel anoints him as king. And you think this is a highlight of David's life. Here he is just a shepherd boy and he's anointed king of Israel. David then faces Goliath and he defeats him, which elevates his status in the entire nation. His popularity grew exponentially. And then all, he served uh, in Saul's uh, uh, court and Saul's jealousy arose because David became extremely popular. In fact, the women in Israel used to say Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. So Saul began to chase him for rage and jealousy and kind of went a little bit nuts. So for the next several years, David lived as a fugitive. David amassed 500 men, which the King James calls some worthless fellows. Now, Tara said that would be a great name for a band. (laughs) Jake and the worthless fellows, I don't know. And led them in the battle against the Philistines, against other enemies for the nation of Israel. The Lord allowed David to be mistreated, to teach him to be totally dependent upon the Lord and not his circumstances. And it was here that the Lord shaped David's heart to become the next king. This was God's seminary for David. This is how God trains all of his children is in the furnace of affliction. It's the best seminary out there. And then so David took Jerusalem from the Jebusites and he eventually established it as the capital of the nation. David then began to reign in Hebron, and he reigned there for seven years until finally the whole nation of Israel acknowledged him as their king, fulfilling what God said he would do. David then built a city and he brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of the Lord, back to Jerusalem. 
So when David worked through David, or when God worked through David to establish the nation of Israel, it was then that they had peace from all of their enemies, all of their enemies, which, and this is where we come to in the place in our text. The passage before us is absolutely huge. It is a defining moment in all of the Bible. And it comes as one of the most significant chapters when it comes to our Savior. Because it's here that the future of not just Israel is determined, but the future of all mankind and God's people. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So let's get into the text. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now? I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. So here David was relaxing at peace in his house, but, and and the Lord had given him rest. And David had this beautiful palace built for himself, which was fit only for a king. Bible says it was cedar and cedar was a very hot commodity, very expensive commodity back then. So here David is in his palace. And we see there in verse 2, there was something not right. David was uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable. He wasn't satisfied because here he was dwelling in this huge palatial estate and God was still in this tent. And that the Ark of the Covenant was in there. And so in David's mind, a tent was portable and something you moved around But it wasn't permanent. David did not want the Lord in his presence to be a transient thing. He had this idea in his mind. He wanted to make a permanent dwelling place for the Lord's presence. So that his people could worship and fellowship with Yahweh. This is also the first time we see Nathan the prophet in the scriptures. And we see him later in the scriptures rebuking David for his adultery with Bathsheba. So David turns to Nathan as more of an advisor. And Nathan gives him the go-ahead to build a temple. After all, Nathan had seen God do tremendous things through David's life. He says, well, why not? Go, go ahead and build a temple. See, David wanted to glorify God in everything he did. And that is so important for us to remember. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this was David's mindset while he sat in his palace. What can I do to make God famous? What can I do to honor him and glorify him? And I think in our everyday lives, this is what the Lord wants us to think about. When we focus on the cross and what Jesus did for us, we see, like David, Jesus, through his finished work, has given us rest from all of our enemies. God has chosen to make his temple not in a place, but in our hearts. See 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So that should cause us to want to do things, not out of obligation, but as a response to what he's done for us. Whenever we are blue or down in the dumps, All we have to do is gaze upon Calvary and see his great love for us. And this causes a response in gratitude and love. You see, 
your life in Christ is not obligation. It's not a got to. It's a get to. God is always the initiator with you. All you do is respond. Doesn't that just free you up? All I have to do is respond to Jesus when his Holy Spirit moves. David was so overwhelmed in his heart that all he was doing was wanting to respond for all that the Lord had done for him. God is the initiator. We are just responding. If you feel some sort of obligation towards the Lord in your life, some sort of duty because you feel like you owe him all the time, which we do, something you're trying to pay back, then you're living according to the law and not according to his grace. You're being driven by guilt, not by his grace and mercy. The book of Colossians tells us, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Such a great passage. All you're supposed to do is walk the same way you receive Christ. You receive Christ and you just walk with him. Jesus doesn't expect you to pay back what he's giving you. He just expects you to receive from him. That's it. And why does he pour grace out on us undeserved sinners? You ready for this? Because he enjoys it. He enjoys giving sinners undeserved favor. So Nathan says, well, go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. Do what is in your heart because, you know, God's with you. So Nathan immediately encourages David because the Lord had always been with David and whatever he did. But please note, Nathan was only encouraging David as a special advisor expressing his own feelings, but he wasn't sharing specific instructions that he received from the Lord. He didn't seek out the Lord for this idea that David had. Not that it was wrong, but we'll see later on in the chapter that the Lord had rearranged the circumstances. So both Nathan and David loved the Lord and were obedient to him and both said, yeah, why not build a temple for his glory? Why would the Lord rebuke that? And I love how the Lord allows us to move forward with plans in our heart for his glory and honor even when we don't seek him for those plans. I remember a few years, several years back, I thought I felt thought I felt called to plant a church. It's funny. I didn't even remember seeking the Lord. And I started the process and had some people in our living room. And then all of a sudden, bam, my niece and my nephew move in with us. Uh, out of a bad foster care situation. I said, Lord, I, I thought you wanted me to plant a church. And he said, I, I did, right in your own home. I thought, wow, okay, this is what we will do. But you see, the Lord, I wanted to do it for the Lord. And, and the Lord said, I want you to love these two tra- uh, traumatized kids. I want you to love them. I want you to serve them. So the Lord may not... Uh, have fulfilled the desires of your heart. But please note that he will give you something better than you thought in his time and his way. So look at verse four through seven. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? 
I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel, from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges or rulers of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The very night that David sought Nathan as an advisor is the very night the Lord came to Nathan. And this shows us the Lord is always listening and is always involved in the affairs of our lives, even to the minutest detail. David was focused on building a grand house for God. But you see, God corrected David in saying, even the grandest house cannot contain the grandest God. The Lord tells David that he never asked for the leaders of Israel in the past to build him a permanent structure, but that he had moved with his people, this is key, in the tabernacle from place to place. And the Lord shows from the beginning this migratory arrangement by his own design. The Lord chose to move with his people and is telling David that his glory and his presence is amongst his people, not in the container that it comes in. And the Lord is more glorified in a tent because his presence and glory shines through in a dwelling that's rudimentary and plain. And that's why God shows you, chose you, brothers and sisters. He has made his home, his tabernacle in you. You know why? Because his presence shines brighter in broken vessels. In broken vessels. It's through a broken vessel which God shines his light the brightest. Are you broken this morning? Are there areas of your life where you're just, man, I'm just so messed up. How can God even use me? And the Lord said, that's precisely why I can use you. Because these are areas where you are weak, but I am made strong. So he loves broken vessels to do his bidding. And that's why he chose you, looked at you in your sin and depravity and said, you know, I can use him. I can use her. I can shine through so that people would see me in you. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Broken people is what God loves. And this idea of a tabernacle is so that God can make his home amongst his people. From the beginning of time, this was always God's desire to be at home amongst his people. But the fall messed all of that up. So the Lord throughout all the ages began to covenant or promise. I'm going to get in trouble when I use this next word in various dispensations. Be quiet, Fred. (laughs) As a prescribed way to bring about a permanent Edenic home for he and his people. The climactic being our great high priest giving his life for us. To bring us to Eden. Now watch this. 
This idea of the tabernacle. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the word dwelt there, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there in the Greek is the word skeno. The Hebrew equivalent of the word means to settle or pitch a tent. The idea is that when Jesus came, he tabernacled among us. John is signaling to us that Jesus is the presence of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The kabod in the Hebrew. Kabod means glory. It literally means the the word kabod was the presence of God that dwelt above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The word literally means weight, substance. It is God's kabod, his glory, which, which he is associating with Jesus Christ as the manifest presence of the tabernacle behind a veil of flesh living amongst his people in fellowship. So when our Savior came as the God-man, he came to tabernacle among us. We didn't go to him. He came to us. He initiated with us. And when he died and rose and gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, he went from tabernacling with us to tabernacling in us. The end of the Gospel of John, after the resurrection, Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And it was at that moment that the Holy Spirit was in them and in us and all who receive Christ by faith and repent of their sins. It's also worth noting that in the Old Testament, Yahweh would manifest his presence in a glorious cloud or pillar of fire. And whenever his presence moved, the people would pack up and move with God. I think that's so important for us to remember that we are dependent on the Lord where we move in our lives. I think many of us as believers, me included, move about doing certain things because we think they're good ideas, but we haven't been sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the le- his leading in our lives. And when we do that, when we do, when we pull a David and said, you know, I'm just going to build a temple for the Lord before seeking him, it causes an unsettledness in our heart. One of the distinctives of the ministry that I grew up in is just a simple dependence upon the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Now, I haven't always abided by that dependence, but that's always been with me. And whenever I've sought the Spirit of God for direction, in other words, Lord, I'm staying right here until you move me, it has always worked out. But whenever I have not sought the spirit of God for my life and I begin to move away and rely upon my own uh, wherewithal, I find that things don't go so well and I always end up having to come back. (laughs) And my heart is tumultuous instead of just resting. For some of you, God is calling you right now just to sit and be still. Your heart is unsettled in your life because you keep moving around and moving around and moving around. I remember my sister in high school, she had a little tree and this was in San Diego and she planted it and it was, it was a lemon tree 
And she decided she didn't like where it was sitting. And so she actually uprooted it, moved it, replanted it, uprooted it, moved it, replanted it. She couldn't decide where to plant the tree. And what ended up happening is that lemon tree died because she didn't leave it alone to give it time to grow roots down into what it needed to to nourish and grow. And that's like some of us. Maybe we just need to sit for a while. Maybe that's why the Lord is is closing the doors of our church. Maybe it's time for some of us to just sit and seek the face of the Lord. Lord, what do you have next for my life? Not what do I want to do? What is it that you want? And boy, it's always better. My dad once told me, son, it is better to wait on the Lord than wishing you had. Where does he want you to go? It's hard to just sit still. It's even harder to move around without God's leading and presence, isn't it? It's so much better just to say, Lord, move me however you want to move me. Look at verse 8 and 9. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have, (coughs) excuse me. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So in verses 8 and 9, God begins to remind David of what he's done for him. How the Lord called David from the life of a shepherd to the life of a king. From overseeing sheep in a pasture to ruling over God's people. David in the beginning says, God, I've got a great idea. And God says, David, don't you remember where I've brought you? And the Lord reminds him that he has been with him throughout all the struggle, all the fighting, all the battles with the Philistines, all the running away from Saul, all the mistreatment from Nabal, and all the difficulty he went through in obtaining the nation. The Lord did this through David to remind him that it was the Lord's doing. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. Psalm 48, 14. The Lord is with you wherever you're at in your life, even in the struggles and the difficulties, even when you can't see him, even when his hand is not visible to you. He's there with you now, and he's actually working things out for your good and for his glory. The Lord was always working behind the scenes of David's life, even when he was hiding at the cave of Adullam from Saul. He was always there. Let verse 8 remind you that the Lord will never take away his presence among you, ever. I think that's so important for us to remember. We are not where we are because it's, we are not where we are because of us. We're where we're at because it's where the Lord brought us. You didn't receive that promotion from work because you're just this great human being. You received the promotion from work because God is being gracious to you and to me. When I remind myself of the blessings the Lord has bestowed upon me, what happens is my capacity to enjoy those blessings is increased because I know that I didn't earn them. But when even, I mean, even the smallest things can be a pleasure. Lord, thank you for this salad. I can't believe you gave me this salad. This salad is just beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Even the littlest things. But when I seem to somehow account that I earned what I have. 
my capacity to enjoy those things diminishes. As a young boy went to a local store with his mother, and the shop owner, a kindly man, passed him a large jar of suckers and invited him to help himself to a handful. And uncharacteristically, the boy, you know, he held back. So the shop owner pulled out a handful for him. And when they were outside, the boy's mother asked why he had suddenly been so shy and wouldn't take the handfuls of suckers that, when they were offered to him. And the little boy replied, Because, Mom, his hand is way bigger than mine. <laughs> God loves us and wants to bless us. What father doesn't want to bless his children? I'm not talking prosperity gospel, by the way. I'm not saying, God, give me a Porsche. I've asked him that many times. <laughs> and he has said no. And I said, why? He said, because I don't need to give you a reason why. I think you know the reason. I gave you discernment. <laughs> but the Lord gives us the greatest blessing of all. And that's himself. We miss that so much. Lord, all I need is you. My dad had a, had a, a piece of paper attached to his mirror when I was growing up, when I was in high school, and it said, when you realize he's the only thing you have, then you realize he's the only thing you ever need. And that's it. So God goes on. Look at verse 10 and 11. God says, I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is huge. God says in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them. For many, many years, Israel has been scattered and harassed by the nations surrounding her. Israel has always, in a sense, been transient. But God says, you know what? He's going to plant them in a place where they will have perpetual peace. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an eschatological verse. Eschatology, eschatology means the study of end times. This has not happened yet. Israel does not have peace, but they will based on this promise in Scripture. And this will affect the whole world. We even see it right now. Israel has no peace because she is harassed and violently attacked by her enemies that she shares borders with. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not a fan of everything the Israeli government does. And they, they deserve to be called on the carpet for a lot of things. I'm strictly talking from a biblical sense of what the Lord's going to do in the end times. But God always allows his people to be uncomfortable when they're in rebellion against him. And the nation Israel is no different. As we see it today, Israel is an apostate nation. The Lord is allowing these attacks to drive them to their true Moshiach or Messiah, Jesus. If Jesus is not embraced by Israel, God will never allow her to be comfortable until they come to that point. So here in our text, they did come to that point according to this time that we're reading, where they were obedient and surrendered to Yahweh. And the Bible says that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills and that the earth is his, but there is one piece of real estate in all the scriptures in the world 
which God has set his heart upon. And that is the land of Israel. You see, when you mess with the nation of Israel, you are poking your finger in the eye of God. Because God's glory is attached to those people and to us as Gentiles who have received him by faith. That's why we're living in these last days and pay attention to Israel and what's going on over there. The devil knows that if he can exterminate the Jews, he can prevent the second coming of Jesus Christ, which he, which he will fail. Dr. Michael Heiser points out that this is precisely the enemy's plan to exterminate the Jews and prevent God from fulfilling his promises to the Jewish people made throughout the Old Testament. Why is that a big deal to us as Christians, as Gentiles? It's a big deal because things are out of order. And once Israel comes to her Messiah, the whole world will have peace because Christ will be ruling and reigning. There's a huge increase in anti-Semitism lately. And at a recent congressional hearing, presidents of Harvard, Yale, and Penn were asked by New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who repeatedly asked the presidents of these universities whether calling for the genocide of Jews would violate school rules. Their answer was very telling. Each of them said that if the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. But press further, McGill told Stefanik, it is a context-dependent decision. So I asked, what if someone stood up in front of this congressional hearing and called for the genocide of any other race? Is that not speech that crosses the line? And their Jews are being attacked at an alarming rate. And we need to pray for Israel because this passage that we are studying centers around the nation of Israel. And so Jesus will save the nation at the very end. And he says, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Because I, they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Joel chapter 3, verse 2. But thank God there's coming a day when Jesus will make all things new. All things right. And he will establish the nation. So that the whole world will be in prosperity and under his rule. You know that Isaiah 9, 6. The government upon the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's an eschatological verse. Isn't it going to be so cool when Jesus rules and reigns and you won't have to vote for another president again? No more poll numbers. So verse 12, God goes on to promise, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. This here, ladies and gentlemen, in verse 12 through 14 is known as the Davidic covenant. He shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. This prophecy is absolutely astounding. It's as if the Lord looked at David's blueprints for the temple and said, you know what, David? That building is only temporary. I'm going to build you a house that's eternal. And God said that his offspring would come. And would be with Jesus himself. And that God would establish Jesus' kingdom for eternity. That his throne would be established forever. And David wanted to build God a house. But God's intention was to build David a house. David had a desire to build God a temple. 
But God had a desire to build David a dynasty. This wouldn't just affect Israel. This is going to affect the whole world. It's a promise made to David that his offspring would rule forever and is one of the five major covenants that God makes in Scripture. Isn't it interesting that David wanted to do something great for God, but from God's perspective, David's thinking was way too small. And isn't that true of us? There are things that we want to do that we think are great, but God looks at our plans and says, you're thinking way too small, way too small. Because his desires for us are greater than our desires for ourselves. And we think way too small when it comes to the ways we want to be used by him and his kingdom. Your life is never built on what you do for him. It's built on what he does for you. That's the way the kingdom is built. And he says, David, I know you have a desire to plant the people in a permanent place. I know you have a desire to build me a structure where people can come and worship me and fellowship with me. But David, that's too small. That's not eternal. And everything that the Lord does in your life and in my life, is he does it because it has an eternal value attached to it. Not a temporal value attached. And here we see in the Gospel of Luke, this idea of the throne of David that God says he will establish. Listen to what Gabriel And by the way, if you look where Gabriel is in the scriptures, he always shows up concerning the Messiah. Daniel chapter 9, Luke chapter 2, Luke Luke chapter 1. Verse 30 says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now watch this. And the Lord will give to him the throne of of his father, David. The throne of David, when Gabriel is telling Mary this, didn't exist. Rome was ruling and reigning. And did you catch that in verse 32? God said that he was going to give him the throne of his father, David, a direct descendant, the root of David. In verse 13, God tells David, you know, David, I know your desire is to build me a house, a family, but I'm going to use you to bring about the Messiah And he's going to build me a house and a family. You see, that's what he wants. He wants a family. And those of us who have put our trust in him are part of that family. Verses 14 and 15. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In verse 14, God declares to David regarding the future Messiah that I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So what's the big deal? But this is what God is describing to David is a very unique relationship. In fact, in the time at that time, the idea of God having a son was was a totally foreign concept. Even Jews today can't wrap their Orthodox Jews can't wrap their minds around God having a son. That's why they have a hard time. One of the reasons why they have a hard time with Christ. God doesn't have a son. But the word son doesn't just mean a, a begotten son. It, it, it's, it's a title. It's a position. And so 
When it says, now this is kind of strange, when he commits iniquity, what's he talking about? Jesus? Jesus never committed iniquity. Now there's many commentators that say this couldn't refer to Christ because Jesus never sinned. But this could refer to Solomon and all the kings down David's line that were disciplined. But I also believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this text is revealing that Jesus is a substitute for us on our behalf. He substituted himself. No, Jesus didn't sin, but God treated him as though he did for us to forgive us. After all, doesn't it say in Isaiah 53 that it's by his stripes we are healed? When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he didn't need to get baptized. There was no need for Jesus to repent. But why did Jesus get baptized? Because he, he identified with us. And he was standing in our place. And then God says his love will never depart from him. The Lord took his hands off Saul's life, the king, because of his disobedience. Because of Saul, his family, and all his descendants. Do you know they're all extinct now? There are no more, but David's line will live on forever. And because of the special relationship Jesus has to the Father, guess what? We have the same relationship as Jesus has with the Father. No way. Come on, Brett. Are you serious? You're saying that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus? Yeah, it's true. Well, where is that in the word? I'm glad you asked. John chapter 17. He says, Jesus says, I am in them and you are in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world know that you sent me and love them as you love me. Think about that for a second. Isn't that phenomenal? Another place in 1 John, see what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So now you get to enjoy that same special relationship that Jesus had with the Father because of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Closing out the chapter. In your house, verse 16, in your kingdom shall be made sure before me, forever before me. Double stamp, no races. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. You know, on earth, we have a kingless throne. In heaven, we have a throneless king. But soon, the two will meet and he will make his enemies his footstool. A billion years from now, this promise that we are reading in scripture will stand. And he's invited you and me to come with him and to rule with him and to reign with him. Revelation 3.21 says, to the one who conquers, and by the way, how do you conquer? You put your faith in Christ. 1 John 5. That's how you conquer, is you put your faith and trust in him. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. What? What? As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, Jesus invites us to sit on his throne with him? Why? Because he loves us, because he's a God of grace, and he loves having a family. In closing, we could never make a home for God to dwell with us, 
but God will make us a home with him. We celebrate Advent all because the root of David has been born. Can you imagine Anna looking at Jesus in the temple? Simeon holding that child and going, man, this is 2 Samuel 7, come back to life. Come to life. Just blew him away. We celebrate Advent because the root of David has been born and he was born to die and he was born to raise so that his kingdom will never end. And we get to spend eternity with him. One of my favorite worship leaders, Jeremy Riddle, wrote a song recently called Home. And it says this, Home, a distant shore awaiting me. Home, a city that you're building. Home, I know your love is leading me home. Home, where where we'll lay aside our weeping. Home, where the air is thick with glory. Home, this is where my heart is aching to go. Home, I know one day you're calling me. Home, find me watching, find me ready to go. To my father in a wedding, what a joy in celebrating how good it is to finally come home. To finally come home, can't wait to finally come home. Home, hear the cloud of witnesses cheering us on. To a place where streets are paved with gold. Where there is no night or sorrow, where even death is swallowed, where God himself will make his home. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, son of David, for coming. Son of man, thank you for who you are. We worship you just for who you are, for you are God. Thank you for coming into this world as a, an innocent, helpless child to come into our world, into tabernacle among us, to come to us, to be with us, even though we are wretched sinners, to make us new. We celebrate Advent today because of you. We love you. Now, Lord, could I be so bold? Continue to build us a house as we abide in you and live our lives in obedience and response to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.